Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In our first episode, I got to sit down and talk with Mike Rose, an inspirational teacher and scholar with over 40 years of teaching from kindergarten to UCLA, who has really impacted education and writing studies. What stood out to me from that conversation was how careful of a listener Mike Rose is. I was inspired by the way he talked about teaching, the way he connected teaching to his life, the way he said teaching and writing had this interconnected relationship. He encouraged us to really pay attention as teachers, to really listen to our students, to be present, to hear them. In episode one, Mike talked about his first experience teaching, teaching sixth graders in El Monte, California, which was a white and Latino community. He shared how he's changed as a teacher, the intimate connection between teaching and writing, and how he continues to feel a sense of unbelonging. Before this, I didn't know Mike. In our email exchanges and conversations, he was so genuine, so kind, so intentional. And the way he talked about teaching in our first episode is just who he is as a person. I decided to break our conversation into two episodes. So here we are. Episode 2, a continued conversation with Mike Rose. In this episode, he talks about valuing interdisciplinary knowledge in the classroom. He shares how he responds to student writing. He talks about what he's reading and his tentative title to his new book. Mike, thank you again for joining us. We'll start with another teaching question, but more specifically, a question about how we can promote and foster an interdisciplinary classroom. That is, even if we are teaching one subject, how we can draw on and bring in different knowledge and curriculum. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how the majority of students come to college, study something, and then get a job in another field or discipline. You have an interdisciplinary background, English, psychology, education. How has that background helped you as a teacher, helped you create a classroom that values interdisciplinary knowledge? You know, so um, I have a couple ways to respond to that. One is in, in the current work I do, that interdisciplinarity really comes in handy because the, the, one of the courses that I teach is one that I developed in the School of Ed, and it's a, it's a graduate level course in professional writing. So the students the, who enroll in that class come from the different specializations within the School of Ed. You know, so somebody is in higher ed and somebody else is in early childhood development, and yet somebody else is in, you know, advanced statistics and measurement that interdisciplinary background becomes really handy as I'm working with these students from these different subfields of education. But um, when I was teaching undergraduates, I was really influenced by that whole writing across the curriculum business that emerged, you know, in composition studies back in the, in the 1980s and so with Elaine Maiman and these folks. And in fact, a, a textbook that I did with Mel Canary really did rely on that cross-disciplinary background of, of, of mine. We had readings from the sciences, the humanities, the social sciences, the arts, and we created a whole series of assignments for freshman composition that drew 
on all these different subject areas in an attempt both to provide materials that might be relevant or closer to a student's major or interest, as well as to try and give people some sense of, you know, the different writing contexts and situations that they would face as they moved across their lower division curriculum. Now, you know, there's been a lot of argument back and forth as to whether or not that's even possible and lots of debate about the whole notion of discourse communities and, and all of that. But, but that was what we were, we were trying to do. And my, my interdisciplinary background became just hugely helpful as we were trying to do that kind of work. So I've been, I've been really lucky, Shane, in, in, in having that background. And it plays out in my writing. In the writing that I do, I, I do try to draw on my background in, in cognitive psychology and the, the little bit I know about anthropology and some of the other social sciences that I studied, as well as my background in literature and my background in writing and rhetorical studies. In our first episode, you shared how students have this fear and this anxiety that comes through writing, how that, that's a common feeling for, for students to have, regardless of writing abilities. Writing is personal, intimate, it influences us, makes us think certain thoughts and, and feel certain emotions. Writing is, is vulnerable. The entire process perhaps is an exposure of um, who we are as people. Can you talk me through the ways in which you give feedback? What does that process look like for you? How do you support student agency in the writing process? So now I work with about 20 doctoral students in, in, this, in this class. And as I said, I break the class up into these subgroups so that I'm able to, to give um, uh, much more individual attention to people. And my typical mode of giving feedback is the following. Imagine that there's one group after another group after another group after another group of four to five people. And they each week bring in their two or three pages of some major project they're working on. It could be a conference paper. It could be their dissertation proposal or whatnot. And we treat it just like it were, a, as if it were like a creative writing workshop. You know, they come in, they've got two or three pages a week, and I make them read it out loud so that they hear their prose. Because many of the students in the Graduate School of Education come from the social sciences. So they, they haven't they never had the experience to actually hear their writing as writing, you know? So it begins with them reading. And then I ask the reader what she or he has to say about the piece, having just heard it read out in public. So they get first crack. Then the rest of the group participates and gives feedback. And then at the end, I'll try to sum things up and say some summative things about their piece. And that is the sort of first phase, if you will, of how I give feedback. I listen to what other people had to say about the piece. I listen to what the writer had to say about the piece. And then I try to sum up and focus all of that conversation about the writing uh, in a way that I think will be most helpful. Maybe I'll trim some of the suggestions down to one or two big ones, or maybe I'll emphasize a particular problem that they brought up themselves when they were, you know, taking their first crack at, at, uh, 
speaking about the writing, the oral dimension of this feedback and this group process of giving feedback is really important. And then what often happens is that I follow that up with some written comments on uh, the paper. And, and those comments range all the way, Shane, from this is how you use a semicolon to uh, what are the assumptions be behind this particular methodology that you're using here? Can you, can you say a little bit more? Can you, can you spell out a little bit more specifically in a sentence or two why it is that you're choosing this particular methodology to study this particular problem? So it's a multi-stage, kind of multi-layered process of giving feedback. It's pretty labor-intensive, and it might be followed up with an email from me, but but I feel like it, at least um, giving it my best shot to give them some kind of feedback that they can use to improve the piece. So Mike, it seems like you delay the written part of feedback, which might come to a surprise to many of us who teach writing, you know, at least in the first year writing classroom, maybe not so much the creative writing classroom, uh, so the surprise, I guess, you know, is is that you don't give written feedback right away, which maybe some of us do throughout the process on early drafts and later drafts. Maybe we even use peer review in the classroom, but it might not necessarily look like how you just described. I mean, it seems like that students first read their writing out loud and then their peers give them oral feedback and then you give them oral feedback. I imagine students aren't really used to this. So how do they respond to this type of feedback? And what about the nature of the feedback? You know, does it always come across as negotiable and dialogic? Yeah. So so turns out that this is a this is a kind of a shameful comment about higher education, although it's not going to come as a surprise to anybody listening to this that they've never gotten feedback like this before. You know, they're again, they're coming out of most of them did not go to like a small liberal arts college and major in English or comparative literature or, or history where they would be doing a lot of writing and hopefully getting some comments on it. They all be they, they tend to be coming out of large social science majors where they've just gotten very limited feedback on their writing, very limited commentary on it, and therefore very limited opportunity to become conscious of themselves as writers. It seems like something that I hear again and again and again at the end of class on evaluations and things like that is that it's really a course at the graduate level of them, a course that helps them come to see themselves as writers. What that kind of agency, what that rhetorical agency enables them to do with language that they maybe weren't quite aware of before. Uh, so, so, so the end product of the course may be more a kind of shift in the mental model that they have of what it means to write than maybe any specific thing I did in terms of helping them with sentence style. One, 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 other, one other thing to say that I, I, I think is really interesting. So people, I, I, I probably am going to run into disagreement about this, but I believe in being pretty specific in the feedback that I give people. So, you know, that stage when I'm scribbling things on their paper, or even when I'm giving them oral feedback, I, I, I don't hesitate when I, when I see that they're kind, that they're stuck, I don't hesitate to either say or write out this kind of thing. You know, what I hear, when I listen to you, when I, when I listen to you 
Sam or Jane talk about what you're doing here, it seems to me that the, the sentence you need right here is a sentence that does this. And I'll either write out or speak out the kind of sentence that I think they need to have in that particular place to do what they want to do. And the reason that I give them that level of specific feedback, which again, I understand some people might disagree with, is that I think that, that sometimes we can slip into the mistake of of, of assuming that when we tell people something in the abstract about writing, that they're going to get it. Particularly, that's problematic, I think, when people haven't had a lot of experience as writers or seen themselves as writers. So I just find it much more useful to actually model for them what a sentence would look like that would do what it is they're trying to do, rather than giving them some kind of abstract advice and I want to add on to that, if you don't mind. I feel like there's two big things here that we can do or think about pedagogically as teachers when it comes to response. The first is maybe calling us to be more aware of the familiarity students have with feedback. That is, are we using feedback that students aren't familiar with, which isn't really helping their writing at all, because maybe they don't know what to do with it. So as teachers, maybe we should have explicit conversations about the types of responses they're used to or students' experiences with previous feedback. And the second, which I think goes along with that, is maybe calling us to be more aware of the limitations of different educational situations. For example, maybe peer review works really well in a graduate class with only 10 or 12 students. But that's a pretty privileged position when it comes to using that type of feedback, right? I mean, I'm thinking about high school teachers who see and teach 180 kids a day, where peer review, due to a limited time, due to amount of students, due to having to cover other state-mandated material, just doesn't seem as possible. Does that make sense? I guess what I'm saying is how being aware with what students are familiar with and what limitations are on other spaces can really change the way we think about and give response. Yeah, and, and you're bringing up a really important point here about the, the economics and the politics of all this. That, that, yeah, boy, I mean, when you think about the number of papers, the number of students that most teachers have, it absolutely works against giving the kind of feedback we're talking about. I mean, I... I absolutely realize what a luxury I have in working with 20 students at a pop, let's say, which then facilitates that kind of feedback, makes it possible. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be very conscious here about the, the privilege I have, but I do think it is legitimate for us to, to wonder what kind of undergraduate experience they had, especially when some of them are coming out of, you know, quote unquote, good universities um, and go through their entire four or five years as undergraduates and never have the experience of, ha of, of, of having a single person, a single professor or teaching assistant or reader give them enough feedback of, the, of, a, of a kind that affects their writing or affects their sense of themselves as writers. That's, that's, that's interesting to me. That's interesting to me. But but I, I absolutely take your point about the conditions under which most people 
receive the writing instruction that they receive. I want to end first with what are you reading? And second, what are you writing about? You mentioned a couple of times about how you're struggling through the writing process. What are you writing about? Do you mind sharing with us? Mm. So, um, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't read anywhere near as much as I would like to, especially when I'm working on something, because all the reading I do tends to be driven by the project in front of me. But a, a book that I that I did read in the last couple of months for this project I'm currently working on is by the um, the British philosopher of education, Israel Scheffler, and it's simply called. I think of human potential or on human potential, and it's a kind, it's a philosophical treatise about about ability and potential, and I just found it to be a really engaging and compelling little book because I'm always thinking about these questions of intelligence and ability and the way we measure and assess them and the way we talk about them and the effect that that has on folks, especially folks who are you know not born on the advantaged side of the of the social structure so that that is that is a book that that i have been that i've been reading and and getting some richness from as i as i try to wrap up this current project that i'm working on so as i think you you know my own academic background was kind of spotty and it wasn't until my senior year in high school when i had an english teacher who who turned my life around um, I mean, until then, I was just sort of sleepwalking through through school and through life in general. And so I've been fascinated by that kind of experience for a very long time. And I've encountered it again and again and again in all kinds of different ways in all the different work I've done, both the teaching and the research. And that is this business where somehow school education becomes meaningful in a way that it wasn't up to a particular point. And, and, you know, that ranges all the way from someone who dropped out of high school and went into the workforce and, and had a hard time, you know, with just low-skilled entry-level jobs. And then in their 30s or 40s, they go back and get a GED and changes, you know, it changes their job opportunities a bit and changes the way they think about themselves. So, so I'm ranging all the way from that to, you know, the person who's already at the university and majoring in engineering and then suddenly takes some course from somebody that just makes them realize, oh, my God, what I really want to do is, is to go into like, you know, healthcare in this particular way, working on, on human machine interaction. And, and so, so this, I'm, I'm fascinated by these kind of moments of uh, a coming to a, a sort of an awareness of what education can mean. So I interviewed 100 people, ranging all the way again from the person in their 30s and 40s who are, you know, getting the GED to the professional person who has this kind of enlightenment about schooling when they are well, well, well into school. So I'm, I'm just interested in in looking closely at these kind of transformational moments, these moments when education goes from being one thing or meaning one thing or not meaning much at all to meaning something much different and more powerful and more meaningful and relevant to oneself. And no big surprise, 
that reflects a kind of pivotal shift in awareness in my own life. Uh, so I begin by telling a little bit of that personal story and then open the book up to this range of a hundred other stories of folks who in some way or another have this kind of shift in what education means. And so you can see then why reading a book, a philosophical treatise on human potential becomes so interesting to me right now, because what we're talking about really takes us to the heart of these, these questions about ability and potential and how we assess that and how it can emerge in various ways that are not necessarily expected. The tentative title of the book is When the Light Goes On. There you have it, When the Light Goes On. Mike, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for joining me. I've really enjoyed our time together, and I'm really thankful for you and your willingness to sit down and, and talk about teaching. Oh, Shane, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking the good questions and, and, and asking me to participate.